This week I was pondering and thinking about how things uh, go viral. And I think in our culture today, we, we often talk about, you know, news headlines, videos, and, and photos about things going viral. And that just comes from users online just sharing on their social media feeds, on their Instagram and their TikToks and their Facebooks and, and all these things. And we see that news can spread fast. News can spread from one corner of the earth to the other in a matter of seconds. You can accumulate hundreds and thousands of likes and shares and views. And I was just thinking back this week on well, what, what were like the biggest things that went viral in 2022. And uh, Madison mentioned one about corn. I, don't, I haven't even seen this one. Um, I heard it's a funny song or something like that. Um, but the one I thought about was the slap that was heard all around the world. Right? And if you know what I'm talking about, it's the incident with Will Smith and Chris Rock at the Academy Awards where Will Smith goes and, and slaps Chris Rock. You, you know it. It's funny. Uh, it gave us a lot of great memes. gave us a lot of great humor. Um, and I was just thinking about how these things tend to go viral and how fast these things can go viral. I mean, it can be good news. It can be bad news. It could be funny news. Think about the Babylon Bee. It could be fake news. Uh, the, and, and the medium of which things go viral, or the way the news gets spread, has changed pretty dramatically over the course of human history. And so obviously today, with our technology and Instagram and you know, all, all the technology that we have, news travels faster than it has ever before. But if you think back, not even 100 years ago, to the invention of the television and cable news, and how news was spread that way. That was a game changer. Then you think back even further than that to, to the invention of the newspaper. And I think this was in uh, 1605, the newspaper, and, and how much of a game changer that was. And what, what about before that? Well, the printing press was invented in the 1400s, and that was a game changer for how news gets disseminated across the world. But what about before the printing press? In the Middle Ages and even beyond that, we have... Messengers, we have scribes who would go from one city or town to the next and that they would bring this news. And then there's also the medium of gossip, right? News always spreads through gossip. Even in the old days, news would, would travel, gossip would travel from one village to the next. Nothing has changed in that light. Whatever the medium, big headlines go viral and spread fast, that much has always been true. And unfortunately, I think the news that gets the most attention that gets spread the quickest is usually the bad news. It's usually the slanderous news or the gossipy news. That's the news that we get the most attention to. But today, we're going to read about a story that went viral some 2,000 years ago, and it was a good story. It wasn't a story of gossip or of slander. It wasn't a bad story. It was a story of faithfulness, of, of hope, of mercy, of salvation. It's a story ultimately of praise. This is a story about the birth of a prophet who prepared the way for the Messiah to come, for people to be freed from sin and death. And so our big truth for today is this. Praise the Lord because in his mercy and through his Messiah, salvation has dawned. So go ahead, and if you have a Bible, go turn to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 57 through 80 this morning. 
But before we jump into the gospel according to Luke, let's just review what has happened up to this point in the story. We've been walking through Luke for the past several weeks, and we see that in the early verses of Luke chapter 1, we are introduced to the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And they're shown to be childless. She is barren because they're both old in age. And this is an important point because it draws our mind to stories in the Old Testament where women were barren and childless, and through the Lord's mercy, they conceive and bear children. The story of the childless Elizabeth is also paired with the story of Mary, because of her virginity, she was also childless. So we see these two parallel accounts that are taking place, and both women are going to experience miraculous conceptions and births. And these paired narratives are setting the stage for God to do something big in redemptive history. We can look at Luke chapter 1, and we can see that at first there's the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. Then there's the announcement of Jesus' birth. And then we see that Mary visits Elizabeth. And then we see the birth of John, and then we see the birth of Jesus. There's parallel accounts here. And so the story goes, while Zechariah was on his priestly duty in the temple, he was suddenly visited by the angel Gabriel. And he trembles in fear, as would any of us if an angel appeared in front of us. And the angel told him, this is back in Luke chapter 113, says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. But to this announcement, Zechariah doesn't respond in belief that what the angel said is going to happen, but rather he responded in hesitation and, and, and doubt. And because of Zechariah's disbelief and his questioning, God causes him to go mute. He causes him to be unable to speak for nine months until his son is born. In the last two weeks, we've looked at where uh, Jesus' birth is foretold by the angel Gabriel to Mary. We saw Mary go and visit Elizabeth. And we saw last week that Mary breaks out in song, that she rejoices in God, her Savior. And so now, nine months have passed, and we find ourselves here in verse 71. So go ahead and turn to verse 71, and I'll read through 66. Luke 1, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. 
and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so we're going to have three big ideas today. The first one is this. The Lord shows mercy through the birth of John. And all three big ideas are going to have to do with the Lord showing mercy. And so right off, we see that Elizabeth's nine months are up. It's time to have this promised son. And there was no gender reveal party. Nope, the angel Gabriel just said, you're having a boy, and that's that, right? And in fact, actually, Elizabeth kept herself hidden for the first five months of her pregnancy until she goes and visits Mary. But eventually, the word got out. Look at verse 58. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And so we're going to see that word mercy three times in our passage today. We saw it twice last week in Mary's song, and that just means that this is a key theme in Luke's account. Mercy is important. The Lord's mercy is being shown. It's shown here in John's birth because Elizabeth is well past childbearing years. It's going to take the intervention of the Lord for a child to be born. And her friends and her family, they knew this, and they shared in her joy. They rejoiced with her because of the birth of her son, John. That's just a simple reminder to us to to rejoice with our friends when they get pregnant and when they have kids. Rejoice. The Lord's mercy is shown through children. It's also a reminder to to mourn and to grieve with those who cannot have children, who are, are struggling to have children. So that's just a simple reminder that we see here in this text. And then we move on. And verse 59 tells us that according to the commands that's given in Genesis 17, Elizabeth and Zechariah brought John to be circumcised on the eighth day. And I guess in uh, some cases, children were not named until circumcision, as is the case here. And her relatives and her friends tried to name the baby Zechariah after her father. I think it might have been a way to honor Zechariah in his old age, but... Elizabeth interjected, and she shut it down. She told them that he's going to be called John. And she was being obedient to the angel Gabriel and what he told Zechariah. And this is just uh, maybe another simple reminder uh, to just let the parents decide the name of the kid, right? Just default to them. They, let, let them decide. And, and, but, but how do her friends and family respond? They say, oh, come on, not another John, right? Like, that name is so popular. Like, did you not, like, read last year's most popular baby names? You're going to want another John? That's more or less what they said. But the, the text actually says, none of your relatives is called by this name. They opposed the name. And so they turned to Zechariah, the father, and they wanted to get his thoughts. Like, maybe he, he'll want to name him Zechariah, right? Uh, and so it says, it says, they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So did you catch that small detail? They made signs to him, which implies that he was not only mute, but he was also deaf. Zechariah was mute and deaf for nine months before the birth of John. And we'll come back to that in a minute. That's an important part. So Zechariah asks for a writing tablet, and so they hand him uh, an iPad, and he wrote, 
his name is John. His name is John. He didn't say, I think we should name him John. He says his name is John. Zechariah is being obedient to what the angel Gabriel told him. And in Zechariah's faith and obedience, what happens? Verse 64 says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Zechariah was freed from being mute and deaf and the first thing he did, the first thing out of his mouth was praise God. Because when the angel Gabriel first came to Zechariah, and told him that his wife was going to be pregnant and bear him a son. He, he disbelieved the word of God that was spoken through the messenger Gabriel. And as a consequence of his hesitation, he was mute and deaf for nine months. Think about how hard that would be. But I don't think Zechariah thought that it was a wasted nine months. He was unable to hear. He was unable to speak, which meant he had a lot of time to himself. A lot of time in solitude, a lot of time in, in silence. And in this time, he had time to reflect, time to think, time to, to ponder and consider, time to pray and time to meditate on his Bible, time to sit in the Lord's presence. And I believe that Zechariah used his time this way because of how he responded in faith and obedience when the time came to name his son. And I'm sure he initially beat himself up you know, why didn't I believe the angel Gabriel? But I think that quickly turned to reflection. And when speculating on this nine-month period of, of silence, John Piper said, Gradually, in the silence of those months, when he could not converse with his wife or friends, Zechariah began to see what was happening. It began to sink into his head and heart that these were stupendous, unrepeatable, incredibly significant days. I think Zechariah understood that something big in Israel's history was about to happen, especially after Mary comes to visit his wife Elizabeth. John knows that there's going to be two miraculous births. After 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God was about to act. Zechariah was able to reflect on the significance of what was happening because of a forced solitude. It was forced upon him. No doubt that at first Zechariah felt the weight of his trial. But I think in the end, he saw how God worked, showed mercy, showed faithfulness. And I'm sure he was actually thankful for this trial and the solitude that he had. And I think if Zechariah was here today, I think he'd tell us, don't wait for the Lord to force solitude on you. Find silence in your day. Find silence in your week. I know finding silence is hard. We live in a 24-7 culture. Things are always on demand. There's noise. There's notifications. I think that we as a culture have forgotten what it means to not be distracted. And I preached on this topic a few weeks back when we looked at Psalm 131, and we saw David, and what did he do? He actively calmed and quieted his soul before the Lord. David trusted in God's promises, and he rested in his presence, and he did so by calming and quieting his soul. Silence can be a beautiful thing. It helps us direct our attention onto the Lord. It enables us to reflect and to meditate and to listen to the Lord. And so this Advent season, it's a great time to hit the pause button. It's a great time to hit the pause button, to not get swept up in the hustle and the bustle, 
but to practice being silent before the Lord. I would encourage you to allot time in your day to go before the Lord, to, to sit in silence before him. Find a quiet nook in your house. Tell the family that you're taking 15 minutes and go and be quiet before the Lord and listen and meditate and reflect on the incarnation. Reflect on the fact that the second person of the Trinity gave up his status, gave up his privilege to be born a baby. Don't just go through the motions of Advent and this familiar story, but really stop, find silence in the Lord's presence and marvel and ponder and reflect afresh on this story, the story of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And when Zechariah responded in faith and obedience, when naming his son, his tongue was finally freed. It was finally loosed. And immediately he praises God. And this praise, is, we're going to look at it in a, in a couple minutes, is seen in verses 68 through 79. It's a prophetic song. And from Zechariah, we can learn to respond to our situations and our circumstances and our trials with praise. One pastor said that suffering will, will either make us bitter or better. And for Zechariah, it made him better. In our suffering, let's just cling to the Lord Jesus in faith. And as he sustains us, as he delivers us, let the first thing we do be praise to him. And the response to this string of miraculous events, the birth of John, the loosening of Zechariah's tongue, and his prophetic song is fear and awe. If you look at verse 65, it says, Fear came on all the neighbors. And, and fear and awe can be used interchangeably in this sense. And fear and awe are the right response. It's the proper response to witnessing the miraculous. They understood. The friends and family knew something big was happening. And this something had to do with the coming Messiah, the dawn of salvation. And then we see that verse 65 and 66 go on to say that, And all these things were talked about, through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The news of this miraculous event went viral. These things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Have you heard? Did you hear about John, his birth? Did you hear about Zechariah's song? Did you hear about this coming Messiah? What is this child going to be? The good news just swept the region. And all who heard this good news laid it in their hearts because they knew that the hand of the Lord was surely with this family. All who heard treasured it in their hearts. And they only had a fraction of the story, right? We, as Christians, on this side of the cross, we have the complete story. We know that Jesus, the Christ, is about to be born. We know that he's going to live a perfect life. We know that he's going to go to the cross and pay the penalty that we deserved. We know that he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. We know that he's going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father. How much more should we treasure this story? With what remains of this Advent, let us be filled with fear and awe and lay this story, the story of mercy, the story of faithfulness, the story of redemption in our hearts. 
Let's transition now, and let's look at what that praise from Zechariah looked like when his tongue was finally freed. Verse 67 says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This prophecy is a prophetic song, and it, again, it parallels Mary's song from last week. His song is known as the Benedictus, because the first words in it are blessed be, which in Latin is Benedictus. We see that from the Latin Vulgate, which is just a really old Latin translation of the Bible. And so let's now look at what this song consisted of. We'll go ahead and start in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophets of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so we're going to divide this song into two halves. And the first half is going to actually be our second big idea, which is this. The Lord shows mercy through his faithfulness. The Lord shows mercy through his faithfulness. And some of the beauty about this song is actually crafted uh, and, and woven together through a string of Old Testament verses about Israel's hope. And one of the first things, again, you're going to notice is that phrase, blessed be, which isn't an expression we often use, but just simply means to praise, means praise. And so what you're also going to see and what you're also going to notice is that this first half, these verses are in the past tense. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Jesus has not even been born yet, and, and yet Zechariah is speaking of salvation and redemption in the past tense. Zechariah, filled and inspired by the Holy Spirit, is so confident that salvation is coming. He is so assured that salvation is coming that he can actually speak about it in the past tense. Salvation is here. And notice that word visited. Often in the Old Testament, when God visits a people, it's to bring judgment. But here, God visits his people to bring salvation. And remember that God was silent for 400 years prior to this. Israel had returned from exile in Babylon. They had rebuilt their temple and the temple walls. But not much had really changed spiritually. They were still held captive in their sin. They were still in a sense of spiritual exile. God withdrew his presence. He withdrew his voice. There was no prophet from God during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And Israel is left waiting and wondering, when is this promised Messiah going to show up? And now, to hear through Zechariah's prophetic song that God has visited and redeemed his people, no wonder this news went viral. No wonder why it was spread throughout all the hill country of Judea. This has been the long, long awaited day. Think about the lyrics that we just sang this morning. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. This divine visitation is the dawning of salvation. In verse 69, it says that God raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. And this horn of salvation is not John. It's Jesus. And the imagery of this horn is not one of a musical instrument, but that of a wild ox, uh, which uh, symbolized strength and, and might and power. You think about like, just the running of the bulls that happens in Spain, right? Spain? Yeah, Spain. And how they just let bulls just out in the street, and people just run. Imagine just getting stabbed by one of those horns. Like That horn is powerful. It symbolizes might and strength. And this expression, the horn of salvation, is used only a few times in the Old Testament. But each time, it's in reference to God. And one example is found in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3. David's singing to the Lord, and he says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. David is singing this to the Lord. And this horn of salvation was spoken about uh, by prophets of old as well. We read in Psalm 132, in verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And then a few verses later, it says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This psalm declared that God would cause a horn of salvation to sprout from David, which means that God is going to raise up another David, a new David, a better David, a perfect David. Jesus is the horn of salvation. The time has come, and it is now. Zechariah is heralding this good news. Jesus is the horn of salvation that God raised up, and is going to be used to save his people from enemies and for all who hate him. Zechariah probably had in mind that the Messiah was going to come and, and crush the Roman government. That he was going to come and, and establish a, a kingdom where the Messiah reigned and, and, and peace was had. And in one sense, Zechariah is correct. That's going to happen. But that's going to happen when Christ comes again. Christ will come again to destroy his enemies and to establish the new heavens and new earth. And we dwell with the Messiah. We dwell with Jesus in joy and peace and happiness in the new heavens and the new earth. But in another sense, the Messiah is going to conquer the enemy that is sin and death. And the goal of salvation is not merely to destroy the enemies, but, if you read verse 74, that we might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's the goal of our salvation. We're going to come back to that in a second here. But let's first look at the next two verses, verses 72 and 73. It says this, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, 
the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And so we see that God in his mercy is faithful to his promise. And so raised up a savior to redeem his people. God's mercy is displayed through his faithfulness. God's mercy is displayed through his faithfulness. When Israel was faithless, God was faithful. And we see this prophesied in Micah chapter 7, the last verse of the book of Micah. It says this, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our father in the days of old. God keeps his word. Even when we don't, even in Israel, in our unfaithfulness, God's promises still stand. And what are these promises? What was the promise to our fathers of old? We can trace many throughout the Old Testament, but let's look at one in particular, a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And this is after Abraham uh, brings Isaac up the mountain and is going to offer him to the Lord. The Lord intervenes and provides a burnt offering in its place. And so right after that, this is the promise. Genesis 22, verse 18 through 15 through 18 says this. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. God is faithful to these promises through the birth of Jesus. And God did not withhold Jesus to be offered. Jesus was offered. Jesus was a sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, salvation has come. And we can trace this promise even further back. If we look to Genesis chapter 3, just the third chapter of the Bible, after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, after the fall, after they sinned and brought sin and death into the world, God cursed the serpent, which is just a divine rebellious being who tempted Eve, and it's here that we see the first glimmer of hope for humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read this. God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is speaking about one who's going to come, who's going to crush the serpent's head. Who is the one that's going to come and crush the serpent's head? Well, it's the one that's been foretold by the prophets of old. He is the horn of salvation. He is the new David. He is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is Jesus. And so we saw that the Lord shows mercy through his faithfulness, by raising up this Messiah who conquers our enemies and brings salvation. And so now in the next verse, how ought we to respond to that? How ought we respond to being saved, to being redeemed? Verse 74 and 75 say that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. One, co one commentator summed up the first half of Zechariah's song like this. This is really good. He says, God will make good the promise 
sworn to Abraham and ratified through the holy prophets by raising up the horn of salvation in the house of David through his servant Jesus, who will rescue his people from enemies and equip them for service in holiness and righteousness. We are redeemed so that we can serve. We are redeemed so that we can serve the Lord God with our whole being, with our whole heart. That is the aim. That's the goal. Those who are in Christ have been delivered from our enemies, and now we can serve the Lord without fear, in joy, in righteousness, in obedience. If you've been redeemed by the Lord's mercy, we ought to act like it, right? We have to pursue holiness. We have to pursue godliness. We've got to pursue righteousness in our character and in our conduct, So what sin has a foothold in your life right now that's preventing you from serving the Lord without fear and in righteousness and holiness? What sin are you having a hard time letting go of right now? What's preventing you from serving the Lord? Are you in a season of of bitterness? You're really bitter toward a friend or a family member? Are you in a season of anger? God, why have you put me in this position right now? Anger with a friend, anger with a family member? I know that we're going to spend a lot of time with family this week, right, with Christmas. So is there sin in your life right now that you need to deal with before you go spend time with family so that you can love and serve them well? Are you jealous? Are you jealous of a friend? Jealous of a, a coworker who got a promotion. Or maybe you're idolizing something. Maybe you're idolizing a career. Maybe you're idolizing success. Maybe you're idolizing a relationship, a family. Are you ensnared to gossip? Are you the means by which gossip goes viral? Or maybe are you swept up in materialism? Christmas is often turned into the season where we just buy a bunch of things. Are you swept up in that right now? Are you addicted to something? Are you addicted to pornography? Are you addicted to alcohol? Are you addicted to excessive eating? What is it? What sin in your life is preventing you from serving the Lord Jesus without fear and in holiness and righteousness? Let's see our sin. Let's see it for what it is. Let's repent of it. Let's turn. Let's receive the Lord's mercy and let's serve him in joy and obedience. Our life is but amidst Our life is short. How are you going to use it? Live your life with purpose. Live your life to bring glory and honor to Christ. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy to be served all of the days of our life. So let's go ahead now and and move to to the second half of Zechariah's song. This is our third big idea for the day as well. And I'm just going to go ahead and reread it, just so we have it fresh in our minds. Verse 76 through the end. And his, oh, sorry. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So our third big idea, the Lord shows mercy through his Messiah. The Lord shows mercy through his Messiah. And Zechariah is now transitioning in the song from speaking about these big picture general truths about God's mercy and his faithfulness and his goodness to speaking to his new eight-year-old or eight-day-old son who's going to one day prepare the way for the Messiah. And notice how the tense changes. It changes from the past tense to the future tense. John's mission, his life's purpose, is prophetically revealed. And Zechariah holds up his eight-day-old son and says, You child will be the prophet of the Most High. Remember, there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. This baby is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, for Jesus to come onto the scene. He's going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This fulfills another Old Testament prophet, or another Old Testament promise in the book of Malachi chapter 3. But often, often John gets overlooked. He gets overlooked in our Christmas story. Because I could bet nobody here has any decorations of John the Baptist in their home right now. Anybody? John the Baptist? I didn't think so. We don't either. But he is a pivotal figure in the Christmas story. He is the prophesied, promised forerunner. And he's coming for the prophesied, promised fulfiller. And we know that John grows up and he goes on to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hands. We know that he grows up and he cries out, I am not the Christ, but that one, he, Jesus, he is the Christ. And Jesus himself spoke very highly of John. Later in the book of Luke, in chapter 7, Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John is the greatest Old Testament prophet because he is the one who finally paves the way for the Messiah to come on the scene. And how is John going to prepare the way for Jesus? Verse 77, by giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Forgiveness of sin is necessary for salvation. Our sin separates us from God. It separates us from a holy, a righteous, a just, a perfect God. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. They were banished from God's presence because of their sin. Romans 3 23 tells us that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. For the wages of sin is death. But ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, God has been on a mission to bring us back into his presence. We saw that promise in Genesis 3.15. There would come one who will crush the serpents and rescue his people from their sin. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for God's people to receive their Messiah. He cries out, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. He came to give knowledge of salvation. And this isn't a mere academic or theoretical knowledge. This is an experiential knowledge. God's people will experience salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And this knowledge, this experiential knowledge, it stirs in us. 
when we trust the Messiah, when we trust the Lord Jesus and repent of our sins, we experience salvation. And that, in that experience of salvation, we also get to experience peace and joy and hope. We have been freed from the bondage to sin. Death and hell have no claim on us. John came to give knowledge of salvation because, verse 78, of the tender mercy of our God. Salvation is possible because God, in his tender mercy, sent the Messiah. And the next few verses are going to beautifully highlight what this mercy is. Zechariah says, Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful poetic finish to this song. Jesus is the mercy of God. And Zechariah has shifted now from singing about his son John, the prophet of the Most High, to Jesus, the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the sunrise that visits us. He is the rising sun. This fulfills what Malachi said. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. When the sun rises in the morning, what happens? Darkness flees. The sun brings light and warmth and life. And this also fulfills what the prophet Isaiah said, which Jed read for us this morning. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus is the light of the world. And John the Baptist came to bear witness about this light. And when Jesus appears, darkness flees. Jesus is the son of righteousness, the S-U-N, the son of righteousness. And at his coming, salvation dawns. This divine sunrise the rising sun gives light to those who sit in darkness and who are in the shadow of death. And that was once us. We were once held captive in sin and death. We once dwelled in utter darkness where the shadow of death loomed heavily over us. We were once without hope. But now we experience the light and life because of the Lord's tender mercy. Light has burst into the darkness. Christ has triumphed over death through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. When we are visited by the divine sunrise, we are brought into light. We are brought into the kingdom of light, and our feet are guided into the way of peace. The rising sun, the horn of salvation, has brought us peace. And so maybe this Advent, you find yourself sitting in darkness. Maybe you are just experiencing the turbulence of life right now. Maybe you are in a dark spot. Maybe you're battling uh, anxiety or, or depression or, or purposelessness. Maybe Christmas and the holidays are not a time of joy. Maybe they have some, some scars that come with them. Maybe you're in a season of loneliness right now. Maybe you look back on the year 2022 and it's just marked by grief and pain and loss and heartache and trials and tribulations. Maybe your life is marked by chaos, 
rather than by peace. Maybe right now you find yourself sitting in darkness. Let me encourage you to hear afresh this story. Let this story bring you good news of great joy. For unto us this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. In God's tender mercy, the horn of salvation has been raised. The Messiah, the rising sun, has come and salvation has dawned. Trust and follow Jesus and he will guide you into the way of peace and everlasting joy. This time of year can be tough because days are shorter, right? Dark, dark days, sun rises later, it, it sets earlier. And that can be tough. And that was tough for me sometimes when, when most of the day is, it feels like darkness. And so let me encourage you this week to watch the sunrise. It's not even that early. It's like 7.15. I encourage you this week to watch the sunrise, to grab a hot cup of coffee, find silence and solitude like Zechariah, and sit in the Lord's presence and behold the beauty of the sunrise. Watch the rising sun in the brilliance of its colors. Watch it drive away the night. Watch it drive away the darkness. Watch the shadows flee and the horizon come into focus. And as you do this, as you feel the warmth of the sun, as the first rays of light hit you, as you do this, think of Jesus. Think of the horn of salvation, the son of righteousness. Think of his divine visitation. Think of his incarnation. Picture Jesus as the sunrise that dawns upon us to bring light and life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I pray that this Christmas we would hear afresh this story, and it would cause us to worship It caused our hearts to worship and to praise the Lord because in his mercy and through his Messiah, salvation has dawned. Would this be the story that goes viral, the story that we talk about in our hill country of Judea? Would we treasure this story in our hearts and would we be moved to praise? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for the words that you have given us through Luke's account that we'd have this Advent season to reflect on the birth of the Messiah, that we would look back some 2,000 years ago and see that you spoke. After 400 years of silence, God, you spoke through Zechariah and through the birth of Jesus the Messiah Would we reflect on that? Would we ponder on that? That Jesus, the Son of God, would give up his status, his privilege, to be born a baby. To live a life that we failed to live. To love others as we failed to love others. To die the death that we deserved. So that we would be drawn near to him. That we'd once again be able to dwell in the presence of the Lord. Help us to reflect and to marvel on this. Help us to look expectantly at your second coming, Jesus when we get to dwell with you for all eternity in fullness of joy and peace, would we look at our lives, repent of sin, and serve you without fear and holiness and righteousness all the days of our life? Would we look at the rising sun and think of you, Jesus? We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing a song of response?